Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. It was the morning of June 10th, 1991. Carl Proben was in the garage of his home in South Lake Tahoe, where he lived with his one-year-old daughter, his 11-year-old stepdaughter, and his wife, Terry. It was a typical day. Terry had left early for work, and JC was just leaving to walk to the bus stop. She said goodbye to him as she walked up the hill in front of the house, but it wasn't too long until he heard a sharp scream. He ran out to see JC being pulled into a car. He grabbed his bicycle and tried to catch up to the car, but it was too fast. He ran to the nearest neighbor's house and called 911. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. How are you doing tonight, Rosie? Good. Um, before we start, I had this really great idea to do a, a April Fool's joke. Yeah. Where you vetoed my idea, but I still said I wanted to tell our listeners. And you're going to... And now I'm going to do that. Expose it? Yeah. This would have been intriguing, I think. I was going to say in the beginning of our episode that me and Ryan have been going through a really hard time, and we were getting a separation. And then at the end of the episode, I was going to be like, April Fools, we love each other. Ryan decided that maybe that was not a great idea. Yeah. So I'm telling you now... And asking you if that would have been a good April Fool's joke. Yeah, I feel like that'll be a divisive question because some people would probably think it was funny, mm-hmm. but other people would probably be triggered by it. So, Well, I was thinking because a lot of our listeners like that we're a married couple. So yeah. like the minute they would hear that, maybe they'd be like, I'm done. Unsubscribe. <laughs> That's why we uh, have two people because we can filter <laughs> each other. Now that we got all the bad ideas out, <laughs> before we get started, we want to thank our newest patrons. Yeah. Sam. Oh. You want to read them? Yeah, I do. Sam, Tony, and Scott. We were just talking about how I think Tony is a super cute girl's name. Thank you, Sam, Tony, and Scott. Thank we you, Sam, you guys Tony, and Scott. If you would like to support us and get instant access to our four bonus episodes, plus nab some of our goodies that we will send to you, please visit the link in our show notes and join our Patreon family. We have some really cool episodes on the goofy encounters in To Catch a Predator, my personal favorite so far, The Darker Side of Disney, also my personal favorite, (laughs) Henry Lee Lucas, and Jared, the Subway Guy. Yeah, and the link for that is also on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, I think. But even if you just support us by listening, we really appreciate you. We appreciate you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this week's case is a suggestion from our wonderful listener, patron, and past guest, Liz. Thanks, yeah. Liz. 
Thank you. I was just chatting with Liz for a bit today and telling her how much we really learned from talking to her that we still carry with us now as we approach our stories. She gave us a lot to think about, and of course she was really humble and didn't want to accept it, but seriously, she's made a big difference for us. So uh, if you haven't heard her story, it's episode 29, and anyone who reaches out to us has made a big difference for us. And we do want to apologize because we've been kind of inundated lately with new stories from listeners. Yeah, to those of you that have written in and haven't received a reply, we're sorry for the delay. We've been doing a lot of reading, and all your stories have really been inspiring and meaningful, but we only have so much time, and we can't always get back right away. So just be patient. If we haven't replied yet, don't worry. We haven't forgotten about you. (laughs) Feel free to send us a reminder. We will get to you. And also, if you do send your story to our email, it would really help if you'd put, like, quote-unquote, my story for the subject line. That way we can keep it organized a little better. I have ADHD, so I have a really tough time focusing on reading. And so I actually copy all the text and paste it into a text-to-speech reader so I can listen to it. Otherwise, I just don't absorb it when I'm reading. I know that's sad. (laughs) Anyway, uh, let's get to the topic of the week. Uh, J.C. Dugard, who we're talking about this week, was a name I heard quite often, but I didn't know all the details about her rescue and what she's accomplished since. And it parallels many cases when I think about, like, Elizabeth Smart, Colleen Stan, Elizabeth Fritzel, and even the survivors of Ariel Castro, um, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina Jesus. It's just such a scary situation, and it still happens today, like we just saw with Jamie Kloss. So we think it's really still relevant, even though it's already really popular. Mm-hmm. We just want to give the voice of the victim take on it. And of course, Liz suggested it for us. So mm-hmm. before I go off on a tangent, let's get into it. It's funny you say Elizabeth Smart, because I always get these two mixed up. Elizabeth oh. Smart and J.C. Dugard. Yeah, they're kind of the two most famous kidnapping victims, I mm-hmm. think. So let's start. In September of 1990. Carl and Terry Probin moved to Myers, a small rural town in South Lake Tahoe, with their two daughters, one-year-old Shayna and 11-year-old J.C. They had been living in Arcadia, California, but had recently visited Lake South Lake Tahoe on a vacation and fell in love with the area. It felt like a much safer community for raising kids than the Los Angeles area. There had recently been a break-in at their home in L.A., and I'll just mention, J.C. was Terry's daughter from a previous relationship, and Carl was the stepfather. Her biological father, Ken Slayton, didn't even know about her, and her new stepfather wasn't really too close to her either. She talked a lot about him being really critical of her in her book. Mm. Um, but this seemed like a really smart move for a small family with a baby and a preteen. Mm-hmm. L.A., I can't even imagine. It would be such a stressful place to raise kids. It would. Really expensive, too. The traffic. Yeah. (laughs) J.C. started attending school in the area. She was in fifth grade. Less than a year later, on June 10th, 1991, her class was going to a field trip to a water park. J.C. was a shy girl, and she was pretty nervous about going. I just realized that this was literally one month after I was born. That's crazy. That is, what? That is kind of crazy. Early that morning, her mother, Terry, left the house to go to her job as a typesetter for a print house. Typesetter. Typesetter. I wonder if that's still a thing. (laughs) Me too. 
J.C. walked towards her bus stop later that morning, and her stepfather, Carl, watched her from the family's garage. As she was walking, Carl noticed a gray sedan with two passengers that had just driven past the house, making an abrupt U-turn. Then it headed back towards where J.C. was walking. He didn't think too much of it until he heard a sharp scream. It was J.C. He looked towards the scream to see the car that had just passed peeling out. Yeah, that had to be such a stressful moment for both of them. Instant panic. Carl frantically felt his pockets, checking for his car keys, but he didn't have them or have time to go looking for them, so he grabbed the next best thing. Carl hopped on his mountain bike and pedaled as fast as he could after the car. But he soon realized it was hopeless. He wasn't going to catch up. He ran to a nearby neighbor's house and pounded on the door, eager to call 911 as soon as possible. Yes, can you imagine that? Maybe some of our listeners can. I can only imagine a sinking, helpless feeling, rushing to try to do something to help, but having no idea what you can actually do. He saw the whole thing, but was powerless to stop it, and that is terrifying. Even some of J.C.'s classmates witnessed the abduction. They had been standing at the bus stop that she was walking to when it happened. The bus arrived shortly after, and the kids screamed as they got on the bus that someone had just snatched J.C. Carl called the police and told them his stepdaughter had been taken by people in a two-tone Ford sedan, driven by a male with a black-haired, olive-skinned female in the passenger seat. The police radioed to all units to watch for this car, carrying an 11-year-old girl dressed in pink. They weren't able to find the car matching this description, but they never set up any roadblocks to screen the traffic. You would hope that this would be enough of an emergency for them to do all they could, and later they were criticized for that, for not setting up roadblocks. Hmm. That does, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm not sure of what the usual routine is. By 10 a.m., the California and Nevada Highway Patrols and other local law enforcement from nearby areas had joined in on the search, including helicopters. Officers even went knocking on doors in the area, asking for any leads they could get. Yeah, and they really missed their chance for an easy resolution when they failed to set up those roadblocks. I mean, it seems like a much more effective way than going door to door, you know? It, it just yeah. kind of seems like a waste of time when the first 48 hours are so important. I mean, that's just my opinion, but when you go knock on someone's door, if they are holding a child... They're not going to have them in the doorway. Yeah, it's not like they're they're going to be easy to find that way, but this is the way they handled it, so... Mm. Radio stations broadcasted the news, and J.C.'s school went into emergency mode. Because the the identity of the missing girl hadn't yet been released, parents were showing up to pick up their kids, hoping the missing child wasn't their own. Wow, that's really sad. It's scary if you were a a parent. Uh Uh-huh. It's crazy. Within hours of J.C.'s disappearance... All kinds of media outlets, locally and nationally, were rushing to South Lake Tahoe to get her story out there. Later that day, the FBI even showed up to help in the search. 
It was said that every law enforcement unit within 50 miles was involved in the search. So it's really sad to know the search that day was completely unsuccessful. That's a lot of media. Like, they had so much press press within so many hours. It's crazy. Yeah. Really goes to show how easy it is for someone who has been planning to pull something like this off. Mm -hmm. It's really scary. Around 9 p.m. that evening, Terry and Carl invited a local news crew over to their home to put out a message to their daughter. JC, if you can hear mommy, I love you. I want you to come home tonight safe and sound. It's been 13 hours and that's too long. Yeah. Imagine the desperation of that first night. They're still in complete shock. And it's Terry's first night, probably in 11 years, where she has no idea where her daughter is. The house had to feel so cold and empty. I can't imagine feeling comfortable and at home if I had no idea like where you were, Rosie. Even when you're staying somewhere for the night and I know where you are, I still feel (laughs) uncomfortable being at home. But to have no end in sight and no idea where your loved one is, I can't imagine that kind of insecurity. Mm -hmm. Especially at such a young age. Mm -hmm. The next day, on June 12, 1991, Terry spoke in front of many reporters and cameras. She held her daughter's pink stuffed bunny as she pled for help offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to J.C.'s return. It was pretty powerful. She Mm. she just wanted her daughter back, and she begged for whoever had taken her to bring her back, and they would ask no questions, which is, I don't think that's ever really true, but she was really desperate just to get her daughter back. Yeah, thinking about the bunny, just like... Adds so much sadness that she's holding the bunny. It really personalizes it. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes when you hear these stories, it's easy to just, you know, well, that won't happen to me. But when you see that the person behind it and that they're relatable to you, it's it really sinks in like, wow, mm-hmm. this could happen. Hundreds of FBI agents, law enforcement units, and volunteers searched the South Lake Tahoe area, including the woods. But unfortunately, there was no sign of J.C. A couple families came forward in the community and offered an additional $20,000 for the reward. That's a lot. Yeah, wow. That's really kind of them. The police had a sketch artist work with Carl, so they could send it out to different media outlets and law enforcement agencies. And on June 14th, it appeared on America's Most Wanted. Police were receiving an insane amount of tips, but nothing came out of it. It had been over 72 hours, and investigators and the media were beginning to lose hope. J.C.'s favorite color was pink, so people pinned pink ribbons up all over town. Yeah, that was meant to be a constant reminder to keep their eyes open for J.C., and it was a way for the community to show their support of the family, too. On August 10th, 1991, over 250 people showed up for a candlelight vigil to support J.C.'s family and keep the awareness of her story alive. Yeah, 
And on August 24th, the FBI actually suspected two people in California, just south of Modesto. They were hoping this would lead to something, and they questioned the suspects, but they weren't able to find any connection to the case. Hmm. So that was a dead end. On November 25th, 1991, J.C.'s kidnapping profile appeared in People magazine. They dedicated a three-page spread to her, but again, none of the subsequent Subsequent tips led anywhere. <laughs> Sorry. No, you did it. I did it. A subsequent. Yeah, thing. that was right. Terry Probin wasn't going to give up or let her determination to find her daughter cool down. She founded a group called JC's Hope. It helped keep the volunteer efforts and donations to cause to the cause organized. Yeah, there was actually even a song written for J.C. and performed by a band called Perfect Circle in 1992. The song was named J.C. Lee, and they recorded it and donated all the funds from the sales to the J.C. Dugard Trust Fund. You can actually find uh, the video of them performing this song on YouTube. It's in a really old news clip. How was it? Um, by today's standards, it's very corny, but I mean, it was really heartfelt and, you know. Have you ever heard of that group before? No. Okay. It, it looked like a local, local you know, gig. bar band mm-hmm. group. Got it. Terry's group sold cassette tapes of the song, along with shirts and buttons to raise money for all the expenses associated with the search. And they were raising money to buy stuff like poster materials and printing and postage wouldn't it be nice if the old usps donated some postage to a cause like this (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess it would be yeah you should talk to your manager about it yeah i don't know if he would have the sway (laughs) over the organization like that or i guess the whatever it is the touch no i mean Whatever the company is. Like, oh, got it. It's got controlled it. by the government, but it's funded by sales. So it's a really weird company. It's I'm very unique. Bored. Okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs> the group's efforts also got help from Child Quest International, which used to help recover missing, abused, or neglected children. But they've been permanently closed. They also got help from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The poster included a $25,000 reward, and they hoped the distribution would help bring them some answers and ultimately bring J.C. home. But sadly, time kept going by with no new information. A whole year went by, and still there were no answers. On the one-year anniversary of J.C.'s disappearance, there was another candlelit vigil held in the chem... Commemoration. Oh my gosh, Ryan, I can't say hard words. It's all right. You said it. (laughs) Thanks. Up to this point, the family and friends had mailed out over 1.2 million pictures of JC around the country. And then they just had to wait. Yeah, it was a lot of effort. And it's so sad to see all this effort with no results. Things seemed to go pretty quiet. And reality began to sink in, and the family and friends realized they may never see J.C. again. Ten years passed. On the 10th anniversary in 2001, over 100 people marched down U.S. Highway 50 and South Lake Tahoe 
wearing pink ribbons in honor of JC and her favorite color. And then there was another incident in June of 2002. There was an ex-Catholic priest named Stephen Kiesel accused of molesting three girls back in the 70s. Police were searching his property to see if he had any connection to four missing California girls. They had brought cadaver search dogs onto his property, and they picked up scents that led police to believe that there was likely something buried in the backyard of this man's house. Scary. Yeah. Creepy. And so being close to the same area, they were wondering if there was anything to be found connected to J.C. Dugard. He'd gotten on their radar because he had been living a couple blocks away from the home of Amber Schwartz. Um, at the time, she went missing in 1988. Sadly, she still hasn't been found to this day, mm-hmm. but it did get him on their radar. The cadaver dogs hit on about five spots in this man's yard and had them all dug up, but they were unable to find anything useful. So over 10 years went by. At this point, things are typically pretty hopeless. So I wonder what the cadaver dogs were smelling. Yeah, that's a good question. It's so interesting to me. I mean, things die Mm. all the time, you know. So it could have been... Just animals or something? Yeah, like a Mm. rabbit or a raccoon or... I don't know. It's possible, though, that a a small critter died in his backyard. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to August 24th, 2009. Lisa Campbell was the special events manager for UC Berkeley. A man showed up on the campus that day, seeking permission to host an event on campus. He told Lisa that the event was part of his God's Desire program. That's an interesting name. Yeah. He had actually dropped off a four-page essay with the FBI in San Francisco just before showing up to Lisa's office, which claimed he could help the FBI to cure sexual predators with religion. But we'll talk more about that next week. That sounds very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) The man had two little girls with him as he spoke to Lisa. Now, we're talking about J.C. Dugard here, but these two girls were way too young to be her. She would have been about 30 years old at this point. Lisa noticed something strange about the way these girls were acting. They seemed sullen and submissive around Philip, who she felt was acting erotic himself. Not erotic. Erratic. Yep. Isn't that what I said? You said erotic. (laughs) Well, very different meanings. <laughs> but whatever it was about this guy, it just didn't sit right with her. So she asked him to make an appointment for the next day. And this is how she got his name. Philip Garrido. Hmm. She brought the man's name to Officer Allie Jacobs, who ran it through a background check. There they found out some interesting details about this man's past. He had served time in prison and was currently a registered sex offender on federal parole for kidnapping and rape. And we'll talk more about that later, but for us, the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together. But for this investigator, it wasn't that simple. She wasn't looking at this guy with J.C. Dugard in mind so much. 
She just wanted to know who these little girls were and why they were acting so odd around him. And another thing that set off her senses was that they were clearly school-age girls, but they had come along with him during the typical school day hours, so they were like, why aren't these girls in school? Um, have you heard of homeschooling? (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Also, this guy's a registered sex offender, but he has the cure for sex offenders? Well, yeah, wouldn't he know? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I was just playing devil's advocate completely. Yeah. What's the word? Um, Kate-ish. <laughs> what? Like Kate. Oh. <laughs> yeah. In other words, I was being sarcastic. I know. The next day, August 25th, at 2 p.m., Philip Garrido showed up to his appointment with the two little girls in tow. This time, Officer Allie Jacobs sat in on his meeting about the event. She noticed that the girls appeared more pale than usual. It was a sign that they didn't get much outdoors time. Now, I know a lot of people that prefer the inside to the outside. Video gamers and whatnot. And I grew up with that kind of culture where I hung out with people that would rather, you know, have a land party than a bonfire. And I kind of lean that way sometimes, but... And also, these girls, like you said, they may have been homeschooled, which would explain their presence, but the officer also noticed that they had unusual behavior, so... While looking into Garrido's background, she noticed that his parole terms included a GPS monitor and a 25-mile limit on how far he could travel from his home. She also discovered that he'd violated his parole terms several times, but no one had ever taken the time to check up on him and arrest him again for violating the parole terms. So she saw her possible opportunity here to look into this guy a little deeper. She technically could arrest this guy on the spot, but I'm guessing she thought about the trauma that it could cause to the girls if she arrested him right there with no immediate threat evident. So she called the parole officer instead and left them a voicemail detailing the meeting that she'd witnessed with Philip Garrido and the two girls that didn't seem to want to be with him. The parole office got the message and sent two of their agents to the Garrido's house to check up on Philip. Immediately upon arrival, they handcuffed Philip and went on to search the house. All they found was his wife Nancy and his elderly mother who had started living with him and his wife. They'd gotten the report of the two girls, but they weren't able to find them at the house. That they were probably pretty confused about this and decided to arrest Philip, but they never searched the backyard. <sighs> they really should have done that. Yeah, they should have. On the ride to the parole office, Philip told them that the girls who had been with him when he visited UC Berkeley were the daughters of a relative, and he had permission from their parents to take them to the university. This was interesting because upon his parole release, they had prohibited him from being around minors, and they could have also easily gotten him for that or for traveling 40 miles to the Berkeley University when his parole limit was Mm. 25 miles from home. So, you know, they have a lot of ways they could arrest this guy, Mm -hmm. but they kind of want to get to the bottom of, you know, 
who these girls really were, and I don't think they were buying his story. <laughs> I hope not. That's a pretty weak story. They held him as the supervisor at the parole office reviewed his file with the arresting officers. They decided to let him return home, but they ordered that he return the next day for more questioning about his odd visit to the university. Yeah, they wanted to figure out why he was towing around two young girls when he was legally barred from the right to do so. Even with parental consent, he shouldn't have been doing that legally. The next day, Philip Garrido drove himself and his wife to the parole office in Concord, California, along with the two girls in question and an older girl he called Alyssa. This was on August 26, 2009. Yeah, August 2009, that was almost 10 years ago already. When the couple arrived with the three girls, the parole officer decided to separate Philip from the women and the girls that he'd travel with so they could ask them who they were without him around to influence what they'd say. The oldest girl told them exactly what Philip had told them. Her name was Alyssa. She also let them know that the two girls were her own daughters, and she had given him permission to travel with them. She told them she was aware of his past as a convicted sex offender, but she also believed that he was a changed man. She even told them that he was a great person and really good with her kids. The two younger girls also echoed the same sentiments. So, this seems like another dead lead. According to these girls, this is a stand-up guy. They even say he's a great guy. But it doesn't change the fact that it's illegal what he's doing. Yeah, investigators still had a really weird feeling about this guy, especially knowing about his past. They kept pushing Alyssa for more information about him and about who she was. She wasn't able to provide them with any real legal identification. But this upset Alyssa, and she demanded to know why she was being interrogated. Then she let them know that she had run away from, a, from her abusive husband in Minnesota to escape the abuse, and the Garrido family had taken her and her daughters in to live with them. What is it with Minnesotan guys? <laughs> <laughs> so... At this point, it feels like the law enforcement is just harassing this poor little family. I mean, sure, they had dirt on Philip, but did they really have to drag this battered wife and her two daughters into it? Well, that's when things took a turn. The parole officer called the Concord police, and a sergeant arrived not long after. Yeah, when the sergeant arrived, it seemed like Philip Garrido had a complete change of heart, because suddenly... He started to spill a lot of details about his relationship to that little family. He admitted that he had kidnapped the girl many years ago, and that he'd raped her, and the girls were his own daughters. <sighs> so this was a shocking twist. What are the odds that with a little pressure, he'd just break and dump the whole story into their laps like this? That's crazy. I can't believe it. Finally, the police had something to bring to the girl he called Alyssa that would pers persuade her to tell them the truth. They told her about his confession, and she finally told them her real name. She was J.C. Lee Dugard. And we'll go into more details about exactly how that happened next week, but thankfully she was found after 18 whole years. Wow. I can't imagine many people still having hope that she was alive out there somewhere at this point. And I just want to try to put this into perspective. 
I was literally born one month before her abduction, and I graduated high school a couple of months before she was found. So, this the entire lifetime of a high school graduate was stolen from J.C. Dugard. Thinking about that way is just insane. Yeah, that is really crazy to think about. And it's weird that it pretty much aligns with my lifespan. Like, mm -hmm. from the time I was born till the time I graduated high school, she was... In captivity. Yeah. Ugh. Immediately, Philip and Nancy Garrido were arrested. Then an FBI agent helped J.C. to get on the phone with her mother. At first, when Terry answered the phone, she thought that they were messing with her. But when she heard J.C. speak, she screamed out that her daughter was found. Yeah, she was so ecstatic after almost 20 years and probably believing that her daughter was really gone and dead. Here was the shocking news that she was alive, but also that she had gone through a really horrific time. J.C. was given legal custody of her two daughters, and soon after this call, she was reunited with her mother. The next morning, her stepfather, Carl Proben, appeared on the CBS Morning News, along with Lisa Campbell and Allison Jacobs. Carl described the shock on the family after learning the news. He spoke about how J.C.'s daughters believed that she was their sister, and how they were also emotionally attached to Garrido. The girls actually cried when he was arrested. Yeah, we'll get into more detail next week, but these poor girls had been living in such terrible conditions. But they had accepted it as their reality. They didn't know any better. Their aunt, Tina Dugard, described them as two clever, articulate, curious girls who have a bright future ahead of them. Yeah, it's nice to see that JC was still able to raise them really well, despite their horrible living conditions and the undeniable emotional trauma she was constantly dealing with herself. But this case really gives hope to other people that have been missing for a long time. You never know. There's always a little glimmer of hope for missing people. This one took 18 whole years. I also think it was cute, the request JC made three weeks after she was rescued. Yeah, I do too. I feel like we both would have the same request. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners too. <laughs> J.C. asked to get the pets that she had had that she had been with in the Garrido home. Yeah, don't you like that detail? I mean, obviously, a lot of us, a lot of our listeners know that we're pet people, and I know that a lot of animal lovers listen to our show. Mm -hmm. So I think people will appreciate that detail. J.C. actually used animals in her recovery therapy. She would pet and ride horses, along with her mother, Terry, and sister, Shayna. Yeah, and remember, Shayna was only one year old when J.C. went missing, so they were forming a completely new bond with each other. Wow. And it's funny, Shayna actually taught J.C. how to drive. Oh, crazy. Yeah, so it's weird how that works. Because it had been so difficult for them to get the truth out of J.C., they suspected she was suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. But later on, J.C. actually commented on this theory. She said, The phrase Stockholm Syndrome implies that hostages cracked by terror and abuse become affectionate towards their captors. It's really degrading having my family believe that I was in love with this captor and wanted to stay with him. I mean... That is so far from the truth that it makes me want to throw up. 
I adapted to survive my circumstance. Yeah, and this is so important for us all to remember before we judge these kidnapping victims. Like I said when we talked about Jamie Kloss and also with Elizabeth Smart, there's so many psychological factors and fears that go into the decision to not call out for help, even when you see an opportunity. And we really shouldn't simplify it down to something and slap a fancy name on it like Stockholm Syndrome, when it's much more complicated than that. Like, I actually kind of have a problem with the whole phrase Stockholm Syndrome, because people, they don't ever really develop affection for the person, even the event this was based on. The people in the bank were trying to save their own lives. They weren't developing affection for the captor, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it's a weird way that whoever came up with it tries to simplify it down into terms they can relate to when in reality you can't relate to someone that's been in this situation unless you've right. been in it. Right. After Garrido was arrested, police searched his house to try to get an idea of what this man was up to. Yeah, and he also apparently had access to a neighbor's house, so they searched there as well. They were not only trying to figure out what had happened to J.C., but also seeing if there was any evidence of other crimes Garrido may have committed. One in particular that they wanted to look into was the disappearance of Michaela, is it Garrett? Garrett. Garrett. She had been abducted in the same manner as J.C. Dugard and lived less than an hour away from the Garrido residence. And it's also interesting that Michaela's abduction was just three months after Garrido had been freed from prison in 1988, so that seems pretty suspicious. Just like JC, this girl was abducted in broad daylight right in front of another witness. So we'll just give a brief synopsis of what happened to her here. Michaela was riding her scooter to the market with her friend. It was only two blocks away from her home. They left their scooters at the door when they went into the store, and when they came out, they started walking home, forgetting about the scooters. Typical kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They realized it and turned back to get them, but one of the scooters was missing. Michaela looked around and saw her scooter in the parking lot, laying near a parked car. She walked over to it and bent down to pick it up. Suddenly, someone wrapped their arm around her waist and pulled her into a car. Her friend saw this whole thing happen and ran back into the store to call for help. Oh my gosh. But it was too late. The man got away with Michaela, and she's still missing to this day. Oh, that's terrifying. And based on another story we're going to share later in this episode, this tactic of kidnapping really does seem to align with Philip Garrido. The Hayward police did investigate the Garridos pretty thoroughly but they were unable to find any evidence linking them to Michaela's kidnapping. But the similarities are intriguing, and the connection did propel Michaela's case back into the spotlight when J.C. was found, bringing new leads and raising awareness. Yeah, it's scary to think about if Philip Garrido was the one responsible for this, because if so, where is Michaela? Mm -hmm. You know, like... It's possible that he could have disposed of her. And as oh. horrible as that is to say, it his methods really do seem to align with this. And ugh, it's, it's really sad that there may never be an answer as to where Michaela is. 
Let's talk about Phil, a.k.a. Philip. <laughs> Philip Garrido was born in Pittsburgh, California on April 5, 1951. In 1972, he had been arrested and charged for sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. But the girl declined to testify, so it never went to trial. So of course we can't blame this girl for not wanting to testify, but this case really shows how important it is to follow through on charges like this and make sure the people are held accountable. People that are willing to assault someone else need to have a big old red flag over them, and it is really hard to press charges, but it can really help other people down the road. In 1973, Philip married a girl he went to high school with named Christine Murphy, but he was abusive to her. She tried to leave him, and he allegedly kidnapped her to try to get her to stay with him. Wow. Great way to get her to stay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, dude, but this is not the way to work out your marital issues. But now we see that this guy was abusive not only to strangers, but even to his own wife. And that's Zucchini. <laughs> it's technically only allegedly that he kidnapped her, but it's very easy to believe, given the actions that followed. On November 22, 1976, Philip had an incident with a woman named Catherine Calloway in South Lake Tahoe, the same area as J.C. So we want to tell her story here as well, because her story is also very important and... Ugh. Just disgusting. Katie Calloway was 25 years old at the time, and she worked as a blackjack dealer. She was stopping really quick to grab a coffee for her boyfriend at a market in Tahoe City, California. When she was leaving the market, Philip Garrido tapped on the passenger side window of her car and asked if he could get a ride. And we should mention, Philip was only 25 at this time, so it wasn't some creepy old dude knocking on her window. She said he was dressed nice and he looked all right. She thought he was harmless. And also, he was sporting a ponytail at the time, so... Was that supposed to help? The harmless look? I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay. He politely asked for a ride as he pointed to a car parked nearby and said his car had broken down. So she didn't see any harm in giving him a lift. So you see the connection here between this and the Michaela case? Like... Mm -hmm. Using Cars. some kind of, yeah, car situation to lure a girl near him. So, this was 1976, the year before Colleen Stan was abducted. So, there was nowhere near as much worry about trusting strangers. So, we can see how this, I mean, how she would, you know, give a stranger a ride without even thinking twice. Mm-hmm. They had a quiet ride as Philip directed her to where he said he lived. He told her where to stop, but there was no house. She was confused about how he could live there. And that's when she got a shocking surprise. Philip reached over and took her keys out of the ignition. Then he grabbed her by the neck and held her hands, telling her that if she complied with him, she wouldn't get hurt. He handcuffed her and wrapped a leather belt around her neck and under her knees to keep her from sitting up. He threw a coat over her and started driving the car, telling her that he has it all planned out. <sighs> I cannot imagine having a belt wrapped around my neck and my knees. That would f freak me out so bad. Like the same kind of reaction you have when your nose is stuffy? Yeah. <laughs> 
kind of, but a little enhanced, I feel like. Just a oh, little. Yeah, well, especially <laughs> when you're being held by a stranger that... Ugh. And the weird part is he even stopped for gas while he was driving her, and he forced her into the back seat. She asked him, why me? And he just casually said, it could have been anybody. It just happened that you happened to be attractive, and that is a fault in your case. Wow. This little line makes me so mad, because what is he even saying here? It's her fault she's attractive? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Like, does is he saying that all women should not be attractive, and if they are, it's their fault that they're getting abducted? What? Yeah, I kind of feel like that's what he's saying. What the heck, dude? But as we'll talk about next week, this really illustrates his regular character. He started describing his sexual fantasies to her. Eventually, they arrived at a warehouse in Reno. He dragged her inside where there was a mattress covered by a nasty, torn-up red satin sheet. The room was lit by red, blue, and yellow stage lights, and then there was a movie projector and a stack of pornographic magazines. He had pot and cheap wine, and he was tripping on LSD. He raped her for five and a half hours. Thankfully, a police officer was driving by and noticed a car parked outside the abandoned warehouse, and the broken lock on the door. The officer knocked on the door, and Phil Garrido opened and greeted the officer. But then, Catherine Calloway emerged from behind. He tried to convince the officer that it was consensual, but he was promptly arrested. Oh, that's good. Uh, five and a half hours, though. What the heck was he doing to her for all that time? It's scary to think that he could have taken five hours and let her go, and probably would have gotten away with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, ugh. He was charged for this, and they ordered a psychiatric evaluation where they determined he was a sexual deviant and chronic drug user. He tried to lean hard into his actions being out of control because of the combination of drugs and his sexual deviancy. During this testimony, he talked about how he sat outside of schools at all levels in his car, and he'd watch the schoolgirls and masturbate. This is supposed to be in his defense? What the crap? To plead insanity? Yeah, apparently. I don't know how his lawyer, like, let him use that as a defense because it's ridiculous. But needless to say, this testimony didn't exactly <laughs> land in his favor. In March of 1977, he was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison. While in prison, he met Nancy Bocanegra. Wow. <laughs> I'm full of surprises. First attempt, too. Nancy Bocanegra. I'll say it again. Nancy Bocanegra, who was sitting, who was visiting her uncle in prison. <laughs> wow, you just got a little too cocky there. Yeah. On October 5th, 1981, he married her, and she became Nancy Garrido. Philip only ended up serving 11 years of his 50-year sentence, and he was released on January 22, 1988. And this was just three years before he would take J.C. He was transferred to, a federal parole, to the federal parole authorities in Contra Costa, and he was given a GPS-monitored ankle bracelet. Those are pretty trendy these days. 
Yeah, Ant-Man. <laughs> yep. <laughs> then he was supposed to have a regular visit from parole officers. How the crap did he get out 39 years early? Like, how unfair is that to Catherine Calloway? He raped and tortured her? He should have to serve his full sentence. And he obviously hadn't learned from his mistakes. He wasn't rehabilitated because it only took him three years to kidnap JC. <laughs> well. Not to mention that other girl he possibly kidnapped that Michaela. was only three months after. Mm-hmm. If we've learned anything today, it's that it's okay to maintain hope of finding your missing loved ones. You never know if they might be out there somewhere. Even 18 years after her disappearance, J.C. Lee Dugard found her way to being rescued, and she is a survivor. Yeah, so that's where we'll pick up next week and talk more about J.C.'s side of this experience and exactly what she had to suffer through based on her book, uh, uh, Stolen Life by J.C. Dugard. And it was a really intense read. <laughs> like, she was very honest and open about the whole experience. And at certain points, it was just like, oh, uh, like, how can, how can someone even live through that for 18 years? 18 years. Like, that's the thing that I can't stop stressing is mm -hmm. that's such a long time. Yeah. An entire lifetime of a high school graduate mm -hmm. or an 18-year-old adult, you know? Yeah, that was from when I was born to the day I got married. 18 years. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Isn't that weird to think about? Yeah, it is. You were 18 when we got married. Yeah, that's what I said. Wow. <laughs> so now everyone knows. I think we already said that. Well, okay. <laughs> um. Anyway... Enough of that really sad story. Uh, I just placed my first order on our Threadless shop, which I should have told you earlier. You did? Yeah, I did. Oh. But, whoops. Remember that I April Fool's joke? <laughs> April Fool's. <laughs> <laughs> that was all fake. Yeah. We are getting a separation. Yep. <laughs> I should have asked you before I purchased Which one did you get? Okay, well, I ordered a couple of t-shirts. What the heck? I'm sorry. <laughs> I was so excited, and we, and I thought, you know, I thought you'd understand, mm. because I'm product testing. Mm -hmm. So I ordered the tri-blend and the heavyweight fabric tee. One for me? No, they're both 2Xs. You didn't even get but me a shirt? I I didn't know People see which one you with. would want. So you can order one. Like, I'll help you order one right now if you want. Listeners, support me. Team Rosie. Yeah. I'd love to be attacked more. <laughs> I love it. So um, anyway, I ordered the tri-blend and the heavyweight because I love both of those fabric styles. And so I want to do some product testing and see how I like them. And I'll definitely post pictures once I receive them. It's said between two to five business days, so I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited for the shirt that you ordered me, too. And I'll probably bring them both to the True Crime Podcast Festival that we'll be at in Chicago on July 13th. A, a 
outfit change in the middle of the day? Well, if I get sweaty from being <laughs> nervous, uh-huh. <laughs> it's always nice to have a dry shirt. Remember when um, you used to come see my band play? Mm-hmm. And I would just go all out, and then I'd be really sweaty at the end. And Are you planning to do that at the pod festival? Yeah. Go all out? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, man, this is a weird ending. Well, if you want your own Threadless t-shirt. I think we just had a conflict and then somewhat worked it out, but not really. On Are you sure? I'm going to get my own recording. t-shirt right after this. Yes. If you want a t-shirt, make sure you keep your spouse in mind or your partner and get them one too on Threadless, bovpodcast.threadless.com. I'm sorry. There's a link in our show notes. <laughs> I That is a problem that I need to work on is <laughs> consulting with you before making purchases. When you do get your Threadless t-shirt, you can always tag us on Instagram at bovpodcast or just email us pics if you want to. <laughs> Does that sound creepy? Anyways, why are you reading way. my part? It's a great way to support our show. <laughs> I guess it's less creepy when you say it. So. Yeah, maybe and it could even help someone else discover us when they see you wearing our logo. Are you cutting me off again? Like, I can't talk for the rest of the episode. <laughs> no, why would you get that idea? Anyway, we're not getting a divorce. <laughs> That was an April Fool's joke, um, which you already knew. So, do we have any cat news this week? No, bruh. I'm so excited to go get some tacos. I have cat news. We ran out of cat food this morning. And we need to get some now. Yeah, we're going grocery shopping, so that's why we are going to end it right now. So abruptly. Yeah. So um, if you want to email us your story, you can at vovpodcast at gmail.com. Just make sure to put my story for the subject line so I can organize them and make sure I get back to everybody. Um, Our plan, our goal is to be able to do one listener story per month. Mm -hmm. So if we just have, if we record them all ahead of time and then plan one, because we still want to tell other stories and, you know, just have a nice mix balance of of um, different types of stuff. Because there's We're people that... a lot of stories, though. Yeah, there's people that like the listener stories more, and there's people that like the regular stories more. Mm-hmm. And so we just want to have a nice balance. Anyway, um, thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at VOVpodcast and Twitter at VOVpod. And now we're going to go get some cat food. So Make sure to look at Threadless. Yeah. And get your spouse one. And your partner. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.